welcome, not that all of us are in New York, to uh, session four of our series uh, on reconceptualizing international law. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, welcome. Uh, those of you who have been here all the time, uh, thank you, welcome back. Um, we're very excited for uh, this continuing uh, series and sessions where we practically examine uh, uh, ways to transform international law, why and how it needs to be so, uh, to increase the voices and understanding of international law for addressing grave global challenges um, with our co-organizers, uh, the International Arbitration Group of, uh, of Gibson Dunn, uh, the uh, TWIL uh, International Comparative Law Group of UCLA Law School, and uh, my own organization, Independent International Legal Advocates. Today, uh, we will be talking about uh, reconceptualizing humanities law. And uh, I wanted just a little advertise again that not only are the previous sessions now available and only on our website, YouTube, Spotify, for catching up, where we've covered both an opening session, examining the making of international law, and then looking at reparation and responsibility for historical wrongs, uh, most prominently uh, the colonization, and also a preview for sessions uh, to come uh, early May, and information will come out about that on inter uh, reconceptualizing international economic law, uh, and then a session after that on uh, reconceptualizing the law of spaces, so environment, outer space, natural resources, but again, look out for more information on that, and of course, this session itself be recorded. Um, if you're watching this as, as a recording, you don't need to be told that. If you're watching it live, please uh, spread that to your, your friends. Uh, we've got a, an excellent panel and an, uh, an exciting uh, uh, guest moderator uh, from our co-sponsors, I should say, the National University of Singapore. So without further ado, let me hang uh, hand over uh, to Professor Chia, uh, who will be uh, orchestrating tonight's event. Professor. Thank you so much, Daniel. Um, so welcome to everyone. It's a very exciting panel. I'm really honored to be moderating it. Just very briefly, the panelists will be all speaking about, they'll be interrogating the claimed universality of international law, specifically its fields of international criminal law, human rights, and they're going to be questioning uh, whether these, uh, these various fields, which have come under sustained critiques, and whether they speak the language or advance the vision of some peoples over others, despite their claim to universality. So we're very uh, fortunate to have us have with us today, uh, Professor uh, Kamari Clark, the professor at Department of Anthropology at UCLA. And we also have uh, Professor Obira Al-Kafor, who's a professor at Osgood Law, Paul Law School and the UN Independent Expert on Human Rights, Pablo Oracha, uh, legal advisor of Mexico, who has been a diplomat for many years, and Param Preet Singh, Associate Director of Human Rights Watch. So without further ado, I'll pass over to our speakers and we will have them speak. And then we will have time for a Q&A, which we hope will engage our participants and audience. So Kamari, Mike, could I pass it over to you? Okay, thank you uh, for the introduction and thank you to the IALLA as well as the UCLA Law School, Twail, Gibson Dunn, and of course to Miriam Calhoun for the invitation to present today with my colleagues on this forum. 
Uh, I'd like to start with a, a short vignette that uh, is from the epilogue of my book, Affective Justice, but in many ways it characterizes my approach and thinking about justice and ICL, uh, not as the type of widening of law's humanity through legality, but through the reattribution of justice uh, that allows for the rectification of structural inequality. Uh, so I'll start with a quote from a young man uh, who is from a prominent NGO. And um, here he's talking about his experience in Sierra Leone after the war. And uh, I asked him a question about um, his understanding of justice. And I'll quote, so he said, something that transformed the way I understood justice in my life, you ask? And then he continues, in that book, there's a part where this young boy was running after a young girl for some money somebody had given them for helping that person to carry their luggage. So these are boy, these are kids that are working on the street together and doing different chores. And it continues. And the girl had escaped with the money that the that they both collected from carrying this luggage. And as he continues, the guy was chasing her when this old woman stepped in to stop the fight. The old woman said, and I'm continuing with the quote, why do you do this? So the boy went through this explanation and at some point the old woman asked the young boy, where is your dad? And the young man said, my dad is dead. And the old woman asked, how did he die? And the young man explained that he was working in this industry and his hand was chopped off and they could not provide the medical treatment for him. And then the woman, and I'm continuing from the, the quote, and, the, and then the woman said something to the young man, and this is what really influenced my life, having gone through the conflict in Sierra Leone when I lost my dad. And he continues, so the woman said to the young man, the day you ask yourself, why your dad died, you need to ask yourself, why was it possible for him to die? And then ask yourself, what should I do that another will not die under such circumstances? That day you will become a man. And he continues, and so this, that was what the woman said to him and he continues, I do what I do now to make sure that others don't go through what I went through. So end quote. So this story told by a prominent African civil society activist represents, of course, one person's take on what justice means, apart from its judicialization. It, it, it emphasizes the perspective that the circumstances of structural injustice related to the death of the boy's father are not unrelated to the predicament in which he is working on the streets with someone else who cheated him. What the woman instructed him to do is to rethink the real conditions of injustice that allow him to question why he's working on the streets in the first place. This turn to broadening the terms upon which we reconceptualize humanity's law is connected to what I call affective justice. And so in, in taking up the, the theme and the questions for tonight, um, what I wanted to do was to think about affective justice as a form of, of practice. It's a term that I advanced for understanding people's experiences of justice through embodied and always contingent and contested practices. So 
uh, effective justice has to do with one feeling. It has to do with the regimes that shape our feeling. Um, but it also has to do with the technocratic production of, of laws that, that shape the conditions under which law can be mobilized and leads to the result, a, a particular result, you know, a conviction, um, not a conviction, criminalization or not a criminalization. So the, but the key arguments that, that I want to make today that is connected to affectivities or an approach to thinking about justice, not in terms of simply the law, but in terms of the, the practices through which justice making is rendered visible and viable, the, the key argument is that despite the popular assumption that contemporary international justice mobilization come into force through formalized lawmaking processes, the reality is that they actually don't gain their power through technocratic legal production alone. International justice's humanity gains its power through morally, sociopolitically propelled justice narratives that are brought into being within particular historical conditions and especially historical conditions of inequality. We see that certainly in, in relation to, to violence. And part of the what I'm what I'd like to suggest is that as we think about ICL uh, and the dominant narratives that that it takes, there are three in particular that I want to highlight and one that, that I'll spend my remaining uh, few minutes talking about. But the three narratives that are key to the making of ICL um, conceptualizations has to do with the victim to be saved. So the, the narrative that there is a victim to be saved, which itself has its own moral economy, the perpetrator to be stopped, so, you know, those who are productive of, of violence, um, we need to end impunity. And then the third is the, the idea of an international community that has a responsibility to intervene. And it's these narratives that in, in effective justice, I argue, um, it's these narratives that mobilize law, law's power. Now, in one of the, the key concepts around the organization of the, the panel for today is the idea of humanity's law. And in her publication of humanity's law, rule of law for the global new politics, Ruth Tatel argues that now more than ever, foreign policy decision-making occurs in the shadow of the law by suggesting that the juridical paradigm shift is primarily discursive she insists that the expansion of the international human rights system both enables and constrains politics and requires a new interpretive or new interpretive principles through which to make sense of the present state of global politics. Now here, Titel argues that humanitarian discourses have produced the basis on which larger sets of interpretive principles are shaping global politics through a notion of humanity's law. But what she doesn't consider and, and where I depart and um, in my final few minutes, what I'd like to insist that we reckon that what we don't get is a consideration of, is the reality that an expanded international legal regime does not necessarily mean that those new interpretive principles form the practices that are actually transforming what justice is becoming in our world. While what is seen as a new international legalism is transforming state-centered lawmaking, my discussion today is 
uh, is that it is not the law in and of itself that produces the tools to implement what Keitel refers to as law's reach, law's jurisdiction, personality, and institutionalization. Rather, through an effective justice lens, we see that law's humanity is actually propelled by international law's affective practices that are mobilized by technocratic forms of law's force, but also draws its power through particular moral economies that shape international law's buy-in or its rejection. And so let's take an, an example here. So at the International Criminal Court, the um, where we see the Office of the Presidency, the Office of the Prosecutor are constantly responding to controversies and challenges uh, against the court by shoring up and projecting the core logic of legal accountability as the sole and appropriate objective strategy for ending impunity. And in particular, the ICC routinely individualizes collective violence through the projection of the figure of the victim, um, especially in relation to the perpetrator. So Gambian lead prosecutor for the ICC, Fatou Bensouta, for example, has uh, often asserted that the Rome statute is her Bible. It's not about politics, but the law. Ben Suda explains, has explained uh, that she will use the law to uphold justice. In emphasizing the court's mandate for justice, uh, serving um, victims through legal accountability, she has argued, and I quote, we should not be guided by the words and propaganda of a few influential individuals whose sole aim it is to evade justice, but rather we should focus on and listen to the millions of victims who continue to suffer from massive crimes. The turn on our investment for what others may today consider to be a huge cost for justice is effective deterrence and saving millions of victims' lives." End quote. Now, Prosecutor Bensuta's performative plea for ICC justice, of course, is often delivered in the name of the victim, and it, it deploys a kind of sentimental legalism um, the narrative construction follows a liberalist discourse. It equates justice with the law and invokes the mission of protecting victims against powerful perpetrators who have uh, indeed enjoyed impunity for too long. And this discourse of saving victims by making high-ranking perpetrators individually responsible through judicial trials, in effect, links the notion of protection to a very particular application of legal justice. Um, what we also see are presumptions of colorblind racial indifference, uh, and we often see articulations that race and, and racism are not central to the international law landscape. Um, yet the visual practices of seeing race are actually part of the affective landscape that influence the lived experiences and possibilities. The, the geographies of justice, the locations in which justice is procured, um, and of course, there are paradoxical presences where, where that is concerned. Now, um, so to, to wrap up, let me say that understanding the temp this form of contemporary management of, of violence through international justice projects, such as the ICC, should involve thinking about the way that international justice institutions are imbricated in complicated colonial histories and networks and as a result, uh, emerge from those imbrications, not because they are well-meaning, but because humanity's law does not actually provide the forum through which to eradicate 
political violence. So the ICC, in other words, isn't necessarily able to save the millions of victims through adjudication that it claims. So how do we think about this? So to wrap up, let me just say that what is actually at play today is a new conjuncture of sentimental legalism that equates justice with the law and invokes a mission of protecting victims against powerful perpetrators. But this, this discourse, the sympathizing strategy that neatly collapses the protection of victims with the rejection of impunity for perpetrators reifies a legal tool of holding perpetrators accountable. It, of course, regales the celebratory story of the, the rule of law, uh, but it actually reflects what Sarah Ahmed in Rethinking Speech Act Theory argues through the distinction between performatives and non-performatives. For a performative is a speech act that produces particular events, e effects that has the ability to transform the social reality that it describes. Then what she refers to as non-performatives are speech acts that are effective because they do not intend to do more than they do. So this idea that the law is not politics, it is about the law and you know, we're not saving the entire world, we're using the law and applying it in a particular way. So in other words, particular ICL pronouncements such as the protection of victims are actually legal non-performatives. Speech acts which claim to protect victims are articulated through policy documents, pronouncements, speech, public speeches, but are actually ineffective because of their inability to produce the widespread effects that they claim that laws humanity can do. But instead, what we see is that these modes of legal non-performatives enable the maintenance of institutional legal structures that work as a result of particular histories, controls, categories, and rules of social actors. They also work through particular practices and, and routines that are propelled by technical legal thresholds that cannot necessarily change the conditions that lead to violence in the first place. The problem is that such non-performatives enable institutions to reproduce the status quo, including the conditions that propel violence through their intended legal enactments. So to end, uh, approaching the study of international law through an effective lens allows us to consider how justice is produced through particular imaginaries. Um, but it also shows us how justice making is always open to continual challenges and questions of effect. Using effective justice approach uh, to justice making um, allows us to see justice making not just through technocratic routinization of the law and its force, but also through expressions, including expressions that fail, representations, discourses, feeling regimes, all that shape the way justice is embodied, expressed, and routinized. Uh, it allows us to see how judicial space operates within particular affective realms, you know, save victims, the millions of victims to be saved, um, the perpetrators to be stopped when in fact the structural conditions continue to, to persist. Um, so more importantly, uh, studying justice practices then allow us to also bracket judicialization as the core driver of law's humanity and instead to consider the other modalities. So to, so to end, I just wanted to leave us with four um, key takeaways that I think because the, the panel also has a pragmatic um, mission. Uh, with this critique, where do we go? What do we do? What does this mean? 
Uh, there are limits to the law. There are certainly limits to what international criminal law can do, and that is indeed the case. Uh, but there are four con considerations for further engagement. One has to do with being more realistic about what uh, institutional criminal law structures can actually do for those victimized by violence. What is the temporal scope of perpetration actually? Um, that's the first. The second has to do with considering what role the law can play and whether its political economy is actually justified. Is it worth the millions when those millions could actually be applied to other um, uh, addressing, attending, rebuilding um, national judiciaries, et cetera. Um, it's, it's an open question, but certainly worth consideration. The third, to widen the scope of the historical conditions that actually create violence in the first place. And so here taking into account the long durée of violence, this goes back to the earlier, the opening story uh, where the, the longer structural conditions, the long durée is part of how one considers the nature of victimization. And, and finally, being modest about what international criminal law can actually do for those victimized by violence. And this, of course, is because the reality is that its impact may only be in relation to its signaling effect. So international criminal law's ability to, to establish norms, to signal what is permissible and to create new, new norms. But beyond that, can it save millions being more realistic about what it can do and where other mechanisms and other politi political actors take over, I think it is key here. So I'll stop there, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Kamari, for that fascinating presentation on um, how despite the moral narratives and claims to protect victims, ICLG really fails to address root causes of violence while reproducing the status quo. So I will now um, introduce you to our next speaker, Obiara Okafor, who will talk more about the, uh, give us more of a critical approach to international law that builds on Kamari's presentation. Obi? All right, thank you so much, uh, uh, Chair. Um, and welcome uh, to everyone. Uh, my, these opening remarks will focus uh, more on international human rights law uh, than uh, migration law, uh, but we'll connect them at one point at least. Um, my main concern uh, today, as, as always in this area, lie at the intersection of theory and practice. That is what some refer to as praxis. So, uh, you may also see uh, this as a concern with the living international human rights law, that is the law as it is actually performed, acted out and experienced, not simply as it is written in texts. Um, so with regard to the overarching question posed to us today, that is whether and to what extent and how the identified aspects of humanity's law uh, speak the language or advance the vision of some people over others. Uh, my general response is that yes, international human rights law tends, and keyword here is tends to do so quite a bit, uh, even though not completely. So it's a complicated nuanced story. The global south, uh, if you will, 
uh, was mostly absent from the room uh, when, and again, keyword is mostly, uh, was mostly absent in the room, uh, from the room when the discipline as we now know it was formed, even though they were not totally absent. Uh, so in the beginning of the UN's international human rights law era, a few Global South states and actors, uh, to an extent, uh, their peoples made modest but significant input and to a small extent shaped output in regard to the creation of the International Bill of Rights, uh, but usually against strong uh, Western challenge. Uh, Susan Waltz's work uh, here, it's important. Uh, she, she tells us, teaches us really, because she does the hard empirical archival work. Um, uh, so, um, so she talks about the role, for example, of a few Global South Muslim states uh, between 48 and uh, 66, 1948 and 1966 on Article 18 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, uh, how they influenced the wording uh, of Article 18 from the freedom to change religion to the right to have an adopted religion. Some may say not necessarily in a good way, but you can debate that. But the point was the influence was palpable. But they tried and failed to get uh, uh, their notions of zakat and so on, uh, social justice notions from their religious beliefs uh, into either covenant. Um, global, this Global South coalition, puny, tiny, at the time, especially toward 48, grew toward 66, of course, uh, with all the independence of the African states. Uh, they got the right of self-determination, very important, into the two covenants over uh, uh, the hump. They got it over the hump. The, the, of course, the Soviet bloc was for it. But more importantly, against Canadian opposition, against Australian, UK, Dutch opposition. And you, you don't need to uh, sort of uh, be a, a seer to understand why, see into the past to understand why these countries would oppose self-determination rights, especially anti-colonial self-determination rights. They allied with the socialist bloc and so on, and successfully fought off strong US opposition on the need to have economic and social rights. Um, and what? They initially defeated the US on the need for a single covenant. The U.S. did not want a single covenant. They initially won, but uh, U.S. then arm twisted and won on a revote. Uh, their influence was relatively small overall, uh, but nevertheless should not be discounted. It should not be exaggerated, but should not be discounted. Uh, since then, in our own time, in more contemporary times, Global South states you know, uh, uh, have fought quite hard to reconceptualize international human rights law praxis, usually, usually against strong Western opposition. Uh, for example, the Human Rights Council's agenda, and, and keyword here is agenda, now better, though not adequately, reflects the human rights imaginaries and priorities of expressed by the representatives of those states, uh, which by the way, represent 90% uh, of, of the world's population. So for example, notions of people's rights, uh, the right to de uh, uh, development, permanent sovereignty over natural resources, the right to peace, 
the right to be free from the dumping of toxic waste, the rights of peasants, the right to be free from unilateral coercive measures, the right to international solidarity, uh, the right to be free from the negative impacts of foreign debt uh, and, uh, and the attempt to subject transnational corporations to human rights stricture. These are all uh, global uh, South uh, influence on international human rights law. Uh, in more contemporary times. Um, you can go on, there's a, an attempt now as we speak, literally, to um, uh, settle or to adopt legally binding instruments, i.e. treaties on the right to development and also on business and human rights, again, against strong Western opposition. Um, so, so, but despite all these instances of uh, global South praxis, to attempt to reconceptualize international human rights law. It is clearly not yet Uhuru, as we say on the African continent. Indeed, far from it. Um, the goals are, have hardly uh, been achieved. Why is this so? Um, you don't need to be a sort of an international relations realist to understand that the material and discursive slash cultural power of the global North remains for the most part deeply entrenched, formative and governing. And importantly, even in the minds of all too many in the global South itself. So it's not simply not South, it's actually even in, inside the global South itself. Uh, and you can understand why this is so if you go into history. So for example, the idea of what a human rights violation is, is not a given. It is shared by power. Um, is the dispossession contemporarily, for example, of land in Southern Africa to correct historic wrongs. Is that a human rights violation? Uh, we can debate that. It's not a, it's not a given. Uh, or uh, who the violators are in that encounter or who the violated are in that encounter are, is the right to be free from dumping uh, of toxic waste, is that a human right or not? It depends on who you ask. Um, so um, so it, it remains difficult for uh, all too many of us to understand uh, international human rights law outside the boxes in which power has more or less placed it. Um, these conceptions are deeply, um, though not entirely, of course, shaped, uh, and at times I say marred by material and cultural power. So, for example, uh, the ICC has been accused of being in a geostationary orbit over Africa. Not an entirely accurate story, but if you go to the jails in Stavenhagen, you're, you're not going to see anybody other than an African. That gives you a cause for pause. Um, U.S. sanctions on the prosecutor of the ICC for doing uh, the you know, a crazy thing of actually investigating atrocities in Afghanistan. Um, what price was paid for this? Nothing. Um, land reform, as I've uh, mentioned uh, in Southern Africa, the so-called international human rights community take, took note of human rights violations in that saga at the moment at which there was an attempt to correct the grave injustice of dispossession. So those who try to dispossess those who dispossess them become the violators in this Macabre, almost macabre tale uh, that of, of, of so-called international uh, human, human rights law or human rights law praxis. Um, so what can we do 
given um, the, the, the story I've painted of the way in which regardless of resistance, regardless of the agency of the Global South, regardless of the fact that many in the Global South have attempted to reconceptualize and reshape international human rights law, what to do? What can we do? A handful of thoughts very quickly. First, the theoretical frame must alter. It starts with the mind. Both a decolonial and a genuinely global international human rights law mindset and praxis are imperative. It bears repetition here that the Global South subaltern can think and has done so for millennia. We must start from that point. We must let that thinking much more into the main frames of international human rights law. As Bakshi has taught us, for example, the great Upendra Bakshi, for human rights to be fully realized, suffering humanity must be allowed to think on the official human rights registers and thinking humanity must also suffer in order to understand what suffering is, that suffering is not just suffering from the surfeit of pleasure. Um, and so um, the second point here that is uh, related is that these two moves that I've sort of urged um, uh, the sort of the decolonial uh, change in the uh, move toward a decolonial mindset and, and toward a genuinely global international human rights law mindset. These two moves will have important, in my mind, and um, positive practical implications. And what are these? The first is that it will greatly lower certain transaction costs currently associated with the attempt to uh, legitimize uh, or legitimate, if you like, international human rights law on a mass social basis, especially uh, in, in the global south. What are these transaction costs? The transaction costs are imposed by not, um, shall I say, harnessing uh, in much greater fashion the existing languages of human dignity. The, 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 the um, supposition is, of course, that the subaltern in the global south has not spoken uh, languages of protest or languages of dignity and, and needs to be taught these things afresh like they were in sort of a human rights kindergarten. That is clearly not the case. And yet we know very little about this other, and I just don't mean other, but there are other languages of human dignity and protest that are spoken daily uh, in these places by ordinary people. Um, secondly, a genuinely global mindset will um, help us avoid the kind of, and I'm gonna say it's show of shame that I think that is on display during this COVID-19 pandemic with the kinds of excessive vaccine nationalism that we've seen and way too much uh, uh, non-solidarity. Some may even say de-solidarity that is on display. So um, it will also help us to begin to get away from the kind of hypocritical way in which sovereignty is being treated when we discuss human rights. So when we, uh, um, uh, the, so what I, my point is that sovereignty hardens, right? When the interests of certain powerful states are at stake. For example, when migrants show at the door, those states often you know, uh, uh, bring up a sort of the hardest notions of sovereignty, the toughest impregnable uh, conceptions of sovereignty. But when it comes to sharing the resources of the global South and so on, or intervening in the global South, all of a sudden sovereignty goes soft, right? So we need this kind of hypocrisy needs to be addressed. 
Um, and then uh, the 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 I've already talked about migrants. So I'll, I'll just say that the reason this hypocrisy need, need to be addressed is that they do set back the effectiveness of international human rights praxis, right? Because when people keep saying, why, oh, but you know, this powerful state did that, but nothing happened to them. Why are you uh, focusing on, on the weak states? Or when they see, for example, the vaccine nationalism that 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 strong states, uh, shall I say scientifically, economically strong states have, you know, at, at one point, uh, you know, booked six times the, the amount of vaccines they would need to vaccinate their populations when there was at that point, almost none in most parts of the global South, these things weaken the mass legitimacy of international human rights talk and praxis. And I'll leave those opening remarks at that and we can get into a lot of this in discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, uh, Obi, for that fascinating presentation. I really look forward to discussing further with panelists and uh, an audience on about your presentation. But now we will move on to our next speaker, um, who is Pablo Orocha, um, legal advisor of Mexico. So Pablo, without further ado, I'll pass it on to you. Thank you very much, and and good good evening to to everyone. I'm. I'm very happy to be here and I want to thank the organizers for, for inviting me to this very interesting panel. And I'm already very happy uh, to be third in line because I, I, I think we've heard very interesting uh, comments and elements already. And, and I want to, to react to those in a way. And so I will be adjusting some of the ideas that I had previously uh, thought of saying and sharing with you to, to, um, to to actually continue the dialogue and the conversation that, that is flowing from this panel based on what we've heard so far. Um, when I read the, the synopsis for the panel, and I'm sure that this maybe happened to either all of my fellow panelists or, or even to the participants who are listening to us today, really the topics that are there are very, very broad. We're talking about all the way in all the spectrum from human rights to IHL, to sovereignty, to use of force, all under one big umbrella of reconceptualizing humanities law. So it's very difficult also to, to uh, in 10 minutes or eight to 10 minutes, try to, to narrow all of, all of these things to, to a, a couple of bullet points that, that make sense. And so in this very broad conversation, I wanna to touch upon a, a few elements, which I think can be interesting from a perspective of a country like Mexico. Um, and I, my, my point of departure will be something that we already heard uh, so far this evening in this conversation, which is that when we talk about humanities law, we, we hear a lot and we think a lot sometimes about double standards. We've also heard on how uh, humanities law, and it's a point that I think I, I pretty much agree with, uh, also depends on when you put, where you put the focus of, of power and when power, where power is located and that certainly has an impact. So before going into a, a very few examples of what a country like Mexico can do, I, I, I feel the need to go back just a little bit uh, uh, and, and put another different framework to the conversation. Uh, 
And that is the following. We we also heard uh, from from Kamari, and I and I, again I agree with her that we should not equate justice with law, and and this is absolutely true. However, we have to start somewhere, and and it is important to start looking at the law. And 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 Oviar uh, already gave us a good overview of of how the law has been construed by by a. Uh, 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 a large number of state who, states who have this interest in, in, in promoting and advancing the human rights agenda and to, and to create checks and balances in the international law system that we have. And so my first point based on that would be that we should not uh, minimize or, or undermine the, the, the force and the power of multilateral diplomacy. Coming from a state like Mexico, um, we know that our bilateral uh, relationships can at times be very unbalanced and there is a lot of asymmetry when it comes to power. And that is why multilateralism for us has always been key, because this is the place where we can give a sense of direction to the law, we can give values and, and we can create actually norms uh, or consolidate those existing norms that that give a right direction to to humanity in general terms uh, uh, and and mexico as, as probably many of you know is a is a founding member of the united nations and we always have pushed for this which is the fact that we should be using multilateralism and international law as the guiding principles to advance as humanity and then this comes down to all the areas of the law that we want to talk about it, it applies as well to to uh, human rights, to international humanitarian law, to refugee law, to use of force. Um, in our case, in the case of Mexico, we have a, a, another advantage, which is that in our national constitution, we have a set of principles of foreign policy, which pretty much mirror the principles of the United Nations Charter. They add a, a few others, one of them being the protection and promotion of human rights. And the good thing about that is that even though even within the state, there can be a lot of challenges when we're talking about compliance and guaranteeing and ensuring and promoting and respecting human rights. At least there is a standing constitutional obligation for all of us who work for the state to do that, and especially to do that in the international sphere and in multilateral uh, fora. And, and a situation that has been very interesting for us uh, as a national experience is that many times what Mexico has been able to do is to use this notion of multilateralism and international law to create high standards first in the international sphere, at the multilateral sphere, and then bring them down to Mexico as well. So even for us, it has been very helpful to strengthen our own system through the strengthening of international law. There was a, a, a very big human rights reform in Mexico in 2011. That was pretty much the result of everything that Mexico had pushed for in the creation of international treaties and even organisms. Oviedo uh, spoke about the creation of the Human Rights Council. Mexico was very, very active on that. And actually the first president of the Human Rights Council was, was a Mexican ambassador who was our, our representative in Geneva pushing for these things. So I'm taking all of this time uh, to say and to emphasize that sometimes it may seem that states are very cynical when they talk about the importance of respecting international law, even though there are national challenges. But it is also important to, to notice and to look that 
the more we strengthen international law through multilateral fora, then the better is it is also then to, to come back at home and to look about accountability, justice, and how this becomes a reality. Having said that, I will very briefly, because I, I, I took a, a lot of my minutes to, to address these issues, uh, I also want to talk about things that we do and that we want to push for and promote in, in, in the context of the United Nations in particular, not only as a responsible member of the United Nations uh, within the, the spaces that we have in the General Assembly, but now as members of the Security Council as well, we, we were elected last year and so for this year and the next we have a seat in the Security Council and one of our priorities has always been both in and outside the Security Council the promotion of the rule of law. Uh, Liechtenstein and Mexico brought the, the agenda item to the United Nations and now there's an annual debate uh, on the Legal Affairs Committee uh, in the General Assembly but it is also one of our priorities in the Security Council and it is a cross-cutting priority which basically means that we want to make sure that to the extent possible, in everything that we do and in every debate and every negotiation that we participate in the Security Council table, we make sure that human rights are a priority, that peaceful settlement of disputes is a priority, that respect for IHL is a priority. Um, and in, in one of these concrete examples, we, we have been pushing for uh, an initiative to safeguard the humanitarian space, in particular in the context of countering terrorism or, uh, for example, in the imposition of sanctions, because we've been noticing that there has been a tension between some sanctions that have been imposed or some actions taken to counter terrorism with the access to humanitarian assistance uh, and to organizations that deliver humanitarian assistance. Um, and that is something that, that we continue to, to push uh, right now, we're also in the context of the General Assembly negotiating the, the review of the global counterterrorism strategy. And, and again, we're putting forward language to, to strengthen these aspects. But there is one uh, additional uh, element that I wanted to add in this presentation before going into, into a broader discussion and in the Q&A. And, and it goes very well with something also that, that uh, Oviora said in terms of how when we talk about problems with the global south, sovereignty goes soft suddenly. And, and, and that phrase, when I heard it, I thought it was right on spot. And there's this one thing where we think this is happening and that requires more transparency and where it also requires some uh, e e notion of equality, at least in terms of understanding what is the law and how the law is potentially being uh, manipulated or, 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 or moved in, uh, in this regard. And that has to do with the use of force. Um, the, the UN, uh, and, and I also personally think that, that the, the greatest legacy of the UN Charter and the United Nations is that the reason why there is a before and an after is because now we have an international law system and a diplomatic uh, uh, constellation that is built on a collective security system, which basically means there's one prohibition, the prohibition on the use of force, in international relations with two exceptions, actions that are, uh, or, or decisions taken by the Security Council whenever there's a threat to international peace and security and um, the actions that states might take in self-defense when they are victims of an armed attack. However, in recent years, what we've been noticing, and I go back here to the notion of, of the flexibility of sovereignty when we talk about the global South, 
that some states have been, uh, in a way, interpreting, uh, bending too much the, the, the understanding of, of what self-defense means and the extent of, to which self-defense can get in terms of its scope, to use force against non-state actors on a third country without the authorization of that third country, so basically without regard to, to its sovereignty, uh, for the purposes of a greater good, which in this case is combating terrorism. And, and this is a very common debate on how much, since the international community has a responsibility to, to tackle these things uh, for the sake of humanity, then how much do we flexibilize sovereignty? The problem is that once you break the law, um, you cannot undo that. And once you change a system like the very tight system that we have for the, for the use of force, which is key in order to have a different world and a different aspiration in the world, creating these gaps and fractures in the system can be very, very dangerous. And they can set uh, terrible precedents for situations that we cannot foresee right here, right now, but in the future. And this is what we're seeing, that there are, and this again goes back to the notion of power that we already heard um, that when some states feel, and particularly powerful states, that there is a need for them to act with a particular interpretation of the law in a specific situation, regardless, or, or not even regardless, but with a flexibility of the notions of sovereignty, because we're talking about the global south, uh, that becomes very dangerous. And, and when we started noticing that, that there was, in our view, Mexico's views, this abuse of Article 51 of the UN Charter, we realized that the, the first thing we had to do was, was to bring awareness of this issue to all member states of the United Nations. Because part of the problem was, and still is to a certain extent, that outside of the a little over a dozen countries that participate and take action in this context of combating terrorism, for example, that, that are on the ground, almost the rest of the member states did not know that these things were happening. And therefore, these bendings of the rules happened uh, in the dark, where most member states did not participate in, 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 in the exercise of modifying an interpretation of the law, but basically they didn't even know this was happening. And so it is important, and, and I think this is my point, it is important to raise awareness across the board with all member states of the United Nations. And again, this reinforcing why multilateralism is so important, because we tend to forget that the direction that we give and the construction of global rules should be a global exercise. It should take into consideration the views of all states. The charter talks about equal sovereignty of states. This is a premise that cannot be modified and cannot be put in question depending on the topic we're talking about. If that's the premise, then that's the premise. And we should respect that, which basically means then, again, that when we, when we look about these issues, um, which even involve sometimes breaches to sovereignty, use of force without consent for the sake of an argument of humanity by some, that doesn't necessarily mean that that is the right answer. And, and global debates are still needed. Multilateralism is needed precisely because of that. And that is why also these exercises, I think, uh, are good in shedding light to, to some of these aspects that require a little bit more of attention by states. So 
Um, that is another example of, of something that we're trying to do from a very concrete point of view. Mexico put forward a proposal to, to address this issue in the General Assembly in the context of a subsidiary body that is called the, the Special Committee on the Charter uh, of the United Nations, where at least all states would have the same footing to discuss and to put on record what their views are on the interpretation of the law. And that would then reduce uh, abuses, but also would give a sense of direction to the law to make sure that, that there are no modifications or changes that accommodate only the interests of a few, but, in, but that indeed are uh, global, are collective, are part of international law and, and are constructed as a result of a global debate, which is how multilateralism should operate, and which would actually respect the dimension of sovereign equality when it comes to the creation of the law. And having said that, yes, stating the law is just the first step and then creating justice based on that law is a different story. And that's something where every single day we have to work on, we have to reassess what we're doing. We have to question how, how good or bad are we doing. And that is a constant work in progress um, without a doubt. And that is why we, we go to work every single day, but at least having something as law uh, is the starting point that can give us a direction on, on how to continue protecting all of these key notions, uh, uh, like human rights, which is one of the three pillars of the United Nations, like peace and security, which is another pillar of the United Nations, and all of this with development, which is the third pillar of the United Nations, knowing that if one of those three pillars fail, then we're failing in our overall goal of, of uh, responsible members of the international community. So I think I'll leave it at that. Again, I think it's a very broad topic and a very interesting one. So I would be very happy to, to participate and engage more in the context of, of the questions we might receive and, and with, with the rest of the comments from, from my dear panelists. Thank, thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you so much for that really interesting uh, presentation, Pablo, uh, on how uh, there continues to be unequal interpretation and application of certain key international law rules and the role that states can play to prevent this. I will now uh, pass the, the panel uh, on to Parampreet, who will be talking to us, uh, who is an Associate Director of Human Rights Watch and who will be speaking to us about Myanmar. Parampreet. Thanks so much, Chaya, and thanks so much to the organizers for inviting me to be part of this distinguished panel. Uh, so I'll be speaking today about the role of international criminal law and criminal justice as part of the international human rights framework. And I'll be discussing the application of the law and how it intersects with political power to shift expectations about the imperative of holding perpetrators to account. So in one sense, international criminal law straddles the line between an individual and the collective, since at its core, it focuses on holding individual perpetrators to account for mass atrocities. And here, I, I really want to acknowledge Kamari's remarks about its limitations, which I wholeheartedly uh, agree with. Um, it's not a panacea. It's often imperfect and incomplete. Uh, and certainly, you know, our research uh, at Human Rights Watch across a number of country situations where the ICC is present has made that abundantly clear. Um, but at the same time, accountability is still a really important part of the picture when it comes to protecting human rights. And, you know, I'll just go through uh, some of the, the reasons why. Uh, it can give victims and survivors a sense of redress and a remedy, which they're entitled to under international law. 
It can reinforce that there are consequences for those who commit abuses, which can help build respect for the rule of law over the rule of violence. And actually the case study that I'll be discussing today of Myanmar, uh, will go into that in more detail. And it also individualizes guilt, which can contribute to easing ethnic tensions in certain circumstances. But again, it's not, uh, it's not that accountability is going to solve all of the problems. It's a necessary but not a sufficient condition to realize all of these aims. But here's the thing, it's not as easy as simply bringing perpetrators to court. And this is where I'm gonna come back to the intersection between the law and politi the political landscape on which it operates. Because without any means of enforcement, uh, international criminal law depends on favorable political dynamics, both in the country where the crimes were committed and internationally for it to work. And here I'm talking about the grunt work of building cases through access to victims and survivors, access to crime scenes and key documents and surrender of perpetrators, just to name um, several factors. And in my experience, in our experience at Human Rights Watch, those favorable dynamics that I just mentioned are more often than not incredibly hard to come by, especially if the alleged perpetrators remain in power. So for international criminal law to actually work and have a meaningful impact. As civil society, we have to consider how can we influence the broader political context to make it possible. This requires looking beyond these international criminal mechanisms like the ICC or the various uh, international tribunals that have been established, um, and to look beyond that to influence the broader political and human rights landscape. So on that front, I'm gonna use the case study of Myanmar to share some concrete lessons about the importance of moving outside of the international criminal law silo and thinking about the coordination of different legal mechanisms and institutions to shift the political climate to support accountability. So uh, looking now at the case study of Myanmar. So many of you may have uh, heard a lot about Myanmar in the news lately. It made headlines because on February 1st, the military staged a coup, subverting the results of last year's elections and essentially seizing absolute power for themselves. The situation has rapidly deteriorated, marked by the security forces use of deadly violence against largely peaceful protesters. No one should be surprised by their brutality. That same military has carried out waves of violence against, against ethnic minorities in Myanmar, most notably against the Rohingya Muslims. And again, it, Myanmar was in the headlines in August of 2017, when the military implemented a campaign of atrocities. So we're talking about killings, destruction of villages, torture, widespread sexual violence that effectively pushed out three quarters of a million Rohingya across the border into Bangladesh. And it wasn't the first time the Rohingya were targeted by the military either. Human Rights Watch documented similar waves of violence in 2012 and in 2016. Added to this are decades of deliberately destructive discriminatory laws targeting the Rohingya and years of hate speech aimed at their dehumanization. Right now, there are 600,000 Rohingya that remain in Myanmar, 130,000 of whom are confined in open air prisons with limited access to food, water, healthcare, education, and livelihoods. No one's ever been held to account in a credible court for any of these crimes. Now, looking back to March of 2017, I wanna just go through the sort of I don't want to say procedural history because that sounds really boring. It actually is relevant to understand the sort of multilateral context in which this crisis has been addressed because you can, I think it really helps to illustrate how these different mechanism and fora work together to, to create an expectation of accountability. 
So like I said, in March of 2017, the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva created a fact-finding mission to investigate abuses by the military and others stretching back to 2011. A UN member state-backed investigation is really important because it lends political weight to a comprehensive set of facts that shapes all 193 UN member states' understanding of a particular human rights crisis. And here we're talking about Myanmar. These investigations also create a roadmap for future action. And that's what, that's what we saw um, with the final report. So in 2019, well, beginning in 2018 and culminating in the final report in 2019, this fact-finding mission named six senior members of Myanmar's military as worthy of investigation and prosecution for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Among those named is uh, General Min Aung Lang, who is also the instigator of the military coup uh, that I mentioned earlier. So here I just want to touch on one of the recommendations uh, in the report, because I think it's, it's important to understand its relevance for the broader framework that we're talking about. So one of the recommendations was that the UN Security Council, made up of 15 members, five of whom are permanent, the UN Security Council should refer the situation to the International Criminal Court. So refer Myanmar, basically give the ICC jurisdiction to address crimes in Myanmar. And the reason why the Security Council is a key player in this instance, it's because Myanmar isn't a member of the ICC. And it's the back door um, to refer, referring the situation basically creates a back door, to, back door to justice. But in order to open that back door, it means that a permanent member can't veto the resolution. And uh, for those who are familiar with Security Council dynamics, you probably know that that's a non-starter because China is a permanent member of the Security Council. There's, so there's no prospect of this happening anytime soon. Um, and, and to be clear, it's not just China that would stand in the way of such an initiative. I think increasingly, and um, Pablo can maybe attest to this, but increasingly Russia uh, has uh, voiced its strong support for the Myanmar military's uh, strength in, in, in the coup. So despite the fact that there's no prospect of any of an ICC referral happen, happening anytime soon, it's still important to push it because a, it's exactly the kind of situation the ICC was created to address, rampant impunity with no hope for domestic justice. And B, we can't let the Security Council and China and Russia and the other spoilers off the hook. It does, in short, I think it comes back to what Professor Clark uh, mentioned earlier of the signaling value of, of accountability. And in this case, it's the signaling value of, of an ICC referral. It has rhetorical value as a moral compass, a political symbol, and a pressure point, even if it can't be immediately or maybe even ever realized. So outside of the sort of rhetorical aspect of the UN Security Council referral, I wanna talk about some progress that we've seen. So in, in 2018, with the fact-finding mission delivering its initial report, the UN Human Rights Council created uh, an, a, a, a fact-gathering fact mechanism for Myanmar. It's called the, investigative, the International Investigative Mechanism for Myanmar. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, but the goal is to preserve evidence, to gather and preserve evidence uh, that could be used in criminal trials one day. And the idea behind them is, you know, it's not a court in and of itself, but what it is, it's, it's a placeholder. And it's, it's, it's making sure that evidence is preserved so that if the, the opportunity arises for individuals to be tried in a credible court of law, that there's evidence available, credible evidence available to aid in building the case against them. Um, 
So we have the mecha creation of the mechanism in 2018. In 2019, um, we have a limited ICC investigation looking at the forced deportation, as I mentioned earlier, of the three quarters of a million Rohingya into Bangladesh. And the theory is, while the ICC can't touch crimes that were committed solely on the territory of Myanmar, it can look at crimes that were completed in Bangladesh because Bangladesh was an, is an ICC state party. And here I just want to come back to the importance of an ICC referral again, because it's despite the fact that there is this limited investigation, we still need an ICC referral to capture the full scope of criminality and the violations, not just against the Rohingya, but against other minorities uh, in Myanmar. You know, the military has a playbook for brutality that it uses uh, across Myanmar. And we want to make sure that you know, any accountability solution or accountability approach effectively covers crimes against other ethnic minorities as well. And the thing is, you know, even with this limited ICC investigation, whether it's through a referral or, you know, as it's emerged, um, as I mentioned earlier, an ICC investigation doesn't magically reverse Myanmar's opposition to an obstruction of accountability efforts. I mean, it, it could cre creates jurisdiction to be sure, but many of the cooperation challenges persist. And so that's why that comes back to why it's important to create an enabling climate for accountability uh, to be realized. And by enabling climate, I mean putting pressure on Myanmar and other governments with the power to, to affect change uh, to do so. So we're now at we have a couple of tracks to look at individual accountability and at Human Rights Watch, and it's, it's not just a Human Rights Watch, you don't wanna create the impression that we were the only ones, but we started to think beyond just criminal accountability. Um, and, and we started to think about, you know, how do we challenge the limits to actually realizing it in practice? How can we shift the political landscape and expectations for accountability? And that led us to explore the possibility of state responsibility. And so lo and behold, when looking through various conventions to which Myanmar is a party, uh, it's a party to the genocide convention. And it doesn't have a reservation on the provision that allows disputes between states to advance to the International Court of Justice. So the key is to demonstrate the military's intent to destroy. And here we come back to that really uh, comprehensive and authoritative uh, UN report that I, I mentioned earlier, because it listed a series of indicators of genocidal intent, including the use of hate speech, the brutality of the violence used against the Rohingya and the discriminatory frame it, framework that targeted them. And so we had, you know, in a way, a, a UN body of, of evidence to draw from um, to make, to help bring a, a case under the genocide convention to life. And there's another key feature of the ICJ process that made it really appealing. So under the statute, a state can request provisional measures. And that's essentially injunctive relief designed to protect the interests of the party's rights under the convention that's being litigated. So here we're talking about the genocide convention. So it's an opportunity for the court to order Myanmar to protect the Rohingya from genocide. And what's more, under the ICJ statute, such an order is automatically transmitted to the UN Security Council. From an advocacy perspective, it would give us a new frame to look at an old problem. How do we find a way to improve the human rights of the situation of human rights of the Rohingya in Myanmar? And how do we create the conditions to allow the million plus Rohingya in Bangladesh to return? And the theory was that a directive from the UN's highest court, 
a court that all UN member states recognize in relation to a treaty that Myanmar itself has ratified has significant political weight. So let me tell you, while legally it was extremely appealing um, just to uncover the different layers of opportunities to, as I said, look at an old problem in a new way, our initial efforts to sell this, especially to the big states, uh, fell pretty flat. And every meeting that I, uh, I had with states that I approached, they always went the same way. Um, you know, we would go through the legal framework and then talk about the political advantages and, you know, how it could help reframe, you know, how states look at this accountability problem um, and the need to find a comprehensive solution. And all of the legal experts in the meetings, without fail, were completely intrigued and really enthusiastic and all the political experts uh, just sent us on our way, you know, along the lines of it's really great that you think that that can be a thing. It's probably not going to be a thing, but keep it up. And so that was initially really disappointing, but much to our surprise, uh, Gambia, a small West African country stepped up. Uh, it had no connection to the crimes in Myanmar, but a sense, a deep sense, an abiding sense of moral responsibility to do something. And it wound up bringing the case to the International Court of Justice last November. And I, here, I just want to mention that it's it's really hard. I mean, just working with activists and survivors um, in relation to Gambia's case, and you know, since it's really hard to emphasize the importance of this case to to them, to Rohingya activists and survivors, because it created a path for the world court, but really for the world to scrutinize Myanmar's efforts to erase them. And we had some success, or rather, Gambia had some success in January of 2020 where the court unanimously, unanimously ordered Myanmar to prevent and protect the Rohingya from genocide while the case unfolds on its merits. And in doing so, the court recognized Myanmar as the homeland of the Rohingya, which was already a pretty big win. And there's also an important link here to individual accountability because states aren't nameless, faceless entities. A finding that Myanmar committed genocide then begs the question about who is responsible for the genocidal policies at issue. And that again, feeds the expectation and pressure that people will be held to account, which offers a new advocacy opening in the Security Council um, and with respect to the authorities in Myanmar. So I'm going to end as I started this case study, which is talking about the coup. I think the coup really emphasizes that we're seeing the cost of impunity play out in real time. You know, this isn't just some abstract concept. Uh, you know, the same group of people who've committed, you know, murders rampages across Myanmar are responsible for subverting, subverting democracy. And part of the reason why they've done that is because they have, you know, there's been no accountability up until now. On the flip side, I will say that you know, in looking at the civil disobedience movement that's uh, peacefully protesting against the subversion of democracy, that there's also a growing recognition within Myanmar that the plight of the Rohingya matters to everyone. This isn't just a Rohingya issue, this is an issue that affects everyone. This is the same military that's, that's carried out abuses. And so the result is a stronger call for accountability from all corners of Myanmar and an expanded sense of the relevance of justice beyond addressing crimes committed against the Rohingya. So I will stop there. Thanks very much.
Thank you very much for that fascinating presentation, Paramprit. So I think that this panel has really worked out very well because we first heard from Kamari and Obi about how international criminal law and international human rights law has expanded and developed to, to and in a way, even, uh, even though OB has recognized that human rights law has tried to accommodate the interests of marginalized groups, it has not fully done so. And Kamari has highlighted how international criminal law has actually reproduced itself, entrenching the status quo and its many limitations. And both of them highlighted some really useful takeaways on how we can go forward. And then we heard from, um, We've heard from Parampreet and we have a Pablo from the NGO's perspective and the state's perspective on how there continues to be gaps even in international law and international criminal law today and what strategies states and NGOs, civil society have adopted in um, trying to address these gaps using the Mexico as a case study and Myanmar as a case study. So I will now first uh, invite the panelists to uh, ask questions to each other, and then I will open it up to the floor. And I see that some, uh, pa some participants have already posted questions in the Q&A chat, chat um, box, as well as in the chat group. So I would like to invite all, uh, all questions from the attendees to be posted in the Q&A box, even though I will still take a look at the chat to ensure that no questions have been left out. So we will first start with Kamari because I see that she has, had, she has her hand up. Okay, uh, thank you, Chia. And uh, thank you to, to my panelists. Um, I, I think in, in the spirit of this conversation, it, it truly is a rich one and with interesting attempts to build on each other yet, uh, questions that remain unsettling, I, I think, and, um, and instructive. Uh, both Pablo and Param in, in some ways, Parampreet, um, in, in some ways want to hold on to the instrumentality of international criminal law, and in particular, Parampreet's um, suggestion that we both think outside of the box, but outside of the box, meaning still using the tools of criminal accountability. Um, and, and I want to push a bit more to say that, you know, part of the reality of the is, is a temporal one. And, and part of the pushback here in relation to ICL's tools is that criminal, yes, I think that there's no contest in relation to criminal accountability and accountability for those who uh, are contributing to tremendous violence and genocide in Miramar. At the same time, there's a prehistory that is a critical prehistory in which we have the British colonizing the region, um, Rohingya believing that land was promised to them by the British, that uh, there are land questions, there are exclusion questions, there are citizenship questions, there's the the, the kind of reattribution that's at play. And I think really, if we're going to think outside of the box and question uh, laws, humanity and the tools through which we achieve and rethink structural inequality, we have to go beyond the ICL's criminal accountability, you know, post 2002, et cetera. It, we have to think 
seriously about the long durée, about the, you know, how victims become killers, the the ways, you know, to quote Mahmoud Bandani, but the 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 structures and sedimentation that are part of the the conditions in which violence is possible today, uh, whether it has to do with the Security Council, which is contemporary and historical, but also, um, you know, we've seen this before. We can go through African contexts in which these these long histories are not unrelated, yet, you know, the, the subject matter jurisdiction, um, the, the questions of temporal jurisdiction really don't allow us to think about temporality. So I think part of the creative work that we're all invested in involves how to instrumentalize lost tools, but what the limits of those tools are and what are some of the other ways that we can deal with other forms of sedimentation that are enabling conditions of violence. So um, that's just to, to open it up further, to it, take the invitation, Perrin Preet's invitation, but also I think Pablo and Obiara's sense of what is instrumental, how can we instrumentalize the law and what are the limits of the law? Thank you very much, uh, Kamari, for the great question and observation. Uh, does anyone from the panel want to respond? Maybe I could invite uh, Parampreet to, to respond. Yeah, no, I'm happy to respond to that. I mean, I, I didn't make it the subject of my remarks, remarks because I was really focused on sort of the concrete implementation of ICL. But if you take a step back and look at, you know, the limits or rather, like I said at the beginning, I think it's a necessary but not a sufficient condition. Um, I think that's true with respect to um, looking at other transitional justice mechanisms or templates, you know, looking at reparations, looking at truth and reconciliation opportunities. I mean, those are important parts of the picture, but I think even looking beyond transitional justice, I mean, Myanmar is a great example of what happens when repression takes root and thrives in a country in terms of, you know, shuttering freedom of expression, um, criminalizing, in fact, freedom of expression, um, essentially all the markers of a free society slowly eroding over time. And that, lead, in a way, accountability is a bit too late because the deterioration of society has already taken place. So I think that, you know, for it to be really effective, accountability is like a small slice of what it means to sort of effectively address the inequalities, not just the inequalities, but the repression that has enabled the violations to take place in the first place. Thank you very much, Parampreet. Does anyone else in the panel like to uh, respond, Pablo or, or, or Obi? If I, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Pablo, please. No, go, go, Obi, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go after you, I'll go after you, no worries. Well, I'll, I'll jump in very quickly. Just, just a, a couple of comments in this notion of, of uh, being creative and thinking outside the box. The caveat I would like to make is that I think uh, the, broad, the discussion we're having shouldn't necessarily only be about um, justice and accountability for international crimes. I, I think the aspect of, of um, reconceptualizing humanity's law, to me, it's broader. Uh, but in, in those terms still, we, we I, I think that that's a good exercise. I think that the suggestion from Kamari in terms of like think outside the box, but really taking into consideration pros and cons of the things you can do is a valid one. And, uh, and, and in particular, taking into consideration the limitations that these proposals can have. We have 
promoted for many years uh, an initiative together with France to restrict the use of veto of, of permanent members of the Security Council whenever mass atrocities are being com uh, committed. Uh, this initiative already has 105 signatories. And although, yes, it has the limitation that it doesn't necessarily change or stop the veto, it adds political pressure to the permanent members and that eventually contributes to this notion of accountability. But more importantly, I think that I, I, I really like the question of, of to think more of ways in which violence is possible today and try to stop them. Um, and I think one of the things we've said now from the Security Council is that we, we don't like the fact that the Council has been more of a, a, manage, a manager uh, and an, an, an administrator of conflict rather than an organ that prevents conflict. And, and in order to do so, I think that instead of looking at the Security Council as the body that maintains peace and security, we should really look more at the tools that the 2030 agenda gave us to create uh, sustainable development and to create then uh, a sustainable peace. And to understand sustainable peace, we, we need to take all the pieces of the 2030 agenda and make them a reality. So I think we have to move away from the agenda of security exclusively from the perspective of the council as if those 15 members are the ones that are gonna stop violence from happening, but to think more of the broader perspective that we have to take in terms of all of these social aspects, which is pretty much what Kamari was talking about. And I think she's absolutely right, that can construct the, the fabric upon which peace is built. And if we only see it as a reaction and a response or a lack of response from the Security Council, then I think we will continue to perpetuate the problems that we have. And we will continue to create triple IMs like the one for Myanmar or like the one for Syria, waiting to see when uh, can we bring perpetrators to justice. But we should be focusing much more on development to create peace uh, at all levels. Uh, than anything else. So I just wanted to add that comment. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Obi, please, no, Obi, please yeah, go ahead. Not, I'll, I'll just... uh, not to be too cheeky about this thing, though, flog uh, these issues. By the way, I'm enjoying the discussion. I agree with everything that has been said. But, you know, what do these things have in common, right? I often do these mind things in my mind. So, deep-seated mother, you know, hanging of Black people in the U.S., historically continuing till today, right? Is that a mass atrocity? Just think about it for a moment or not, right? How many people, including by KKK in the police forces, you know, a regular occurrence, right? So that's one way of thinking outside the box, right? So what, that's part of what I'm trying to say, actually, uh, you know, the constitutive uh, 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 power of power, <laughs> right? The, the way in which power frames what we will think of as a mass atrocity is important, right? Um, okay, think about colonial dispossession. That's why I did, I once did a study, it has its limitations, five years human rights reports, right? On dispossession of land in South Africa. The violators, we are all blacks, to, including to the local African NGOs. 
they were, they were, you know, it was a land reform that was a problem, right? The, the fact that this land, people were killed and driven off their land was not an issue. It wasn't a human rights problem, right? So this is what I talk about thinking. But if you go down and talk to an average person in any of these places, their imaginary of human rights, this is looms large on their imaginary of human rights, right? So, so these, are, these are some of the things um, uh, that I mean when we're talking about thinking outside the box in, in, in human rights. I know this is not ICL, but it's connected to ICL, right? Because many of these things are crimes. Think about, you know, somebody just died in Tanzania. Yes, COVID denier. I was a fierce critic, anti-democratic. I was a fierce critic uh, and all that. But there was one thing he did. Half a billion dollars of stolen diamonds and gold recovered, put directly into hospitals. Is that a human rights issue? I don't see any human rights NGOs celebrating that aspect, right? Of it, right? So, so this is, these are the, the, the limitations that make a lot of people on the street and in the villages, in these places, skeptical. And, you know, I'm a believer in human rights. I have to always pledge this allegiance sometimes because people sometimes get the wrong impression, right? I'm actually a cat carry member of one of these organizations, but but what is human rights is deeply, deeply marked, marked by, by power, including in our thinking, right? And, and I agree with Pablo, of course, in, in the institutions of, of international law and so on, right? But these are things we have to begin to kind of uh, uh, call out more, I think. And I think there are a lot of states do it, and it's important. And, and begin to find ways of addressing on the official registers. That's what I was, I was kind of talking about. And these attempts are there. There's, a, there's for example, um, a treaty on business and human rights. There's one on rights to development. You know what happened? When the decision was taken to do a binding treaty on the right to development, you walked out. That's the way you, you don't include the real concerns of actual people on the official register. That's what, that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm talking about. Thank you so much for those interventions. So I really, um, I really agree with uh, especially what uh, Obi mentioned about how there's a need to also uh, shine the light on practices within powerful countries. And I think that, that I believe there's actually a Truth and Reconciliation Commission push by academics to be established in the US uh, to look at violence against black people. And I think that that's very interesting. And maybe that's something that the academic community can do when we're talking about the role of states and uh, civil society. I, I wanted to take this opportunity as a moderator to ask a question to Obi, which I found very interesting in his um, presentation that you mentioned how it's important to look at, uh, to rediscover languages of rights uh, and justice and dignity that uh, non-powerful uh, communities have. I was wondering, do you see these languages as uh, being incorporated into the human rights language or, or supplementing it or operating independently from it? Because I think that in terms of the human rights, mainstream human rights language accommodating these languages, there, there are some limitations because of its liberal assumptions, and it's quite difficult to do so without distorting these alternative languages. 
I, I think that's an excellent question. Um, and it's something on a very practical level that, that I engage with all the time, right? So the, the, the conceptual resistance, anytime, for example, the right to development, you name it. I, I gave that laundry list. I don't want to waste time by repeating them. Of all the, all the things that this broad third world coalition has brought up, this is not really human rights, right? As if there is a preordained notion of human rights that fell like manna from the sky, right? As if the, the, the dominant notion of rights, it was not constructed by philosophy, by thinkers. And that's why, why I, I cited Bakshi here, that people think elsewhere. <laughs> you know, it's not just European liberal philosophers that think about their human dignity, right? But, but, but your question about can they be accommodated? Yes, but not easily. You know, the, the, the whole uh, old sort of uh, common saying, a, lost, a lot is lost in translation. I understand that, right? But what, what a lot of these uh, um, thinkers, uh, for example, the Senegalese thinkers in Bahia, uh, and so on, have tried to do is, is what uh, the great Chino Achebe, you know, who's, who's Ibo-Nigerian like me, tried to do. When I read Achebe, for instance, I often give this, this uh, uh, example. I'm reading English, but I'm actually reading Igbo because he comes from a town, you know, three kilometers from me. I've actually seen him using English to translate the way my people think. That's what he did in English, right? So what they're trying to do, and that's why a lot of Europeans perhaps don't recognize it, right? <laughs> when, when you say things like, you know, um, uh, the right to development uh, and stuff like that, but... My, my, my problem is not so much that everything that comes from the global south should be accepted. My problem is this sort of um, routinized knee-jerk dismissal of these things without any deep thought, without any deep attempt to find out uh, um, about them uh, is problematic, right? Because if I said to my grandmother uh, that, that you have, I have a duty to take care of you, that UTH didn't teach her that. My people have had that for thousands of years. She understands it immediately. Why do I have to tell her that she has a right for me to take care of her? I'm just giving a very simple example, right? For instance, why can't I speak that language? What is wrong about it? For example, right? <laughs> so that's, that's what I'm saying. So I'm just starting from simple to more difficult. I, I agree with you, there'll be things that are difficult to translate. I face that as a multilingual person all the time. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I will now uh, start with the questions that were that, that are coming from our attendees. And I will start first with the Q&A, those that have been posted on the Q&A chat. So we have one question. The first question is, uh, I think it's directed to all panelists. If we're asking the political economy question, why pick the ICC's budget against other perhaps more transformative projects, might it be more effective to examine both in comparison to the global armed force budget, particularly that armed force ostensibly protecting peace and justice? Surely we could fund both international criminal justice and international non-criminal justice programs for far less than states spend on their armed forces. Is there anyone who'd like to go first? Well, I can, I mean, 
being a member state, I, I can I can speak a little bit too. Thank you. So that I, I think there are I think there are a couple of of, of issues to to take into consideration there. Um, and I and I don't want to, of course, speak on behalf of of every single member state. Uh, but I think these these questions also need to be unpacked a little bit more. In in general principle, uh, I agree with the sense that we spend too much more on war than what we spend on peace. Uh, if if any one of of the of the participants uh, eventually wants to visit the the United Nations headquarters in New York once once it reopens after the pandemic, there's a there's an an area of of the the UN in the exhibit which is which is mind blowing where, where there's a, 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 a constantly changing counter of money of what is being spent per second on, on uh, military and, and, and on weapons and arms and a comparison to what is the UN budget uh, in general and budgets uh, dedicated, for example, to disarmament or, or to demining. And it's it's just atrocious. Like the, the, the comparison there is just atrocious. And and the more we realize and recognize how war can be profiting for for some, um, then the more we understand the the, the vicious circles of conflict. That is that is uh, something that I think it, it's there's no way around it. Uh, and it's and it's it's very clear and it's very visible and, and that is horrendous. So I, I, I agree with the premise that definitely we spend uh, at least a fraction of, of what states mostly spend on, on, on war, on peace, we would have a completely different reality. In addition to that, the, the other final element that I would talk about the, the budget of the ICC in particular is that you, you also have um, challenges there. One is not all member states of the United Nations are states parties to the ICC. So um, uh, like the budget is also distributed amongst a, a smaller number of states. Uh, but also it seems very easy in principle just to say or to assume that it would be easier to just increase the budget of the ICC and that that pretty much would, would help contribute uh, most of the challenges it has. Certainly, if it had more money, it could do more. I completely agree with that. But something that is important to keep in mind as well is that um, many states have many difficult and already uh, in place financial burdens. And it is like every single year, there is a big discussion in every forum that the ICC is one of them, but also in the fifth committee of the General Assembly on, on how to increase money because it's it's one thing that from a political perspective, you can say that budget should be increased. And it's another one to actually be a member state that can comply with those obligations of contributions when you also have to pay for everything else. And when I mean, when I say everything else, I mean everything else. We cannot just talk about increasing the budget of the ICC. We have to talk about all the contributions that my country does not only to pay the UN budget, but to every single organ and agency that we are part of, that we pay a quota. And so sometimes uh, the reluctance to, to go into increasing budget is not necessarily because there's a reluctance on, on the work that the institution makes, which is very important and commendable. It really has to do with the financial burdens of a state. 
And, and that also, unfortunately, sometimes has to be authorized even by Congress, which is a different power in our case, for example, than the executive. We, we in the Foreign Service, we belong to the executive power and the executive branch. But at the end of the day, the authorization for the budget and the money comes from a different power. And if there's independence of powers um, and they don't take the, the suggested budget that we are suggesting when we also suggest an increase in our own budget to pay for these things, and the answer is no, from our Congress, then that forces us to go to those negotiations on the ICC budget and say, well, we cannot increase it because we don't even have the money to pay for that increase. So all of this to say that sometimes this discussion on money becomes much more complicated when, when you see it from a broader perspective rather than with a microscopic view of, of the one institution that you're seeing. Um, and it is a challenging one, but, but indeed it, it's something that we still have to keep the fight going. And, uh, and to try to, to do more also on that front. Uh, but most importantly, I think, regardless of the ICC, the focus should be on how much money the world spends on war, which I will repeat myself, it's atrocious compared to the money that we spend on peace. And as long as we maintain that humongous asymmetry, it will be very difficult to, to revert tendencies. Thank you very much, Pablo. Uh, I'm going to move because we, quite, we have got quite a few questions. So I will read out the next two questions and, and open it to our panelists. Uh, the first question is from Natalie Oman. Hello, Obi, could you speak about the line, how the line from Bakhti that you quoted would translate concretely into practice? Suffering humanity must be allowed to think on the official human rights register. And the next question is, uh, this question is to all panelists. Maybe Paramprit can respond. Will the ICC as an accountability response stop the persecution of the Rohingya in Myanmar? Will it redress past wrongs? Is ICC really what the people of Rohingya want? Or do we think that is what they want? Should Human Rights Watch not be more forceful about an ICC prosecution of the US for crimes in Iraq or Afghanistan? Uh, yeah, before we move, though, just I, just very briefly, I, I wanted to say in relation to this um, global ar armed force budget versus ICC budget, because I was the one who pr provoked that uh, problematic. And, and I actually, while Pablo's comments, I think, are very pragmatic and reflect the, his, his experience as a state actor, I, I would actually ask a, a different question, which is, how do we promote a radical justice humanism that is about the preservation of life? Um, and in asking that question, it's because Pablo's point, I mean, it's astounding. It is true that, that the, 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 the funding that goes into our military industrial complex and the funding in other mechanisms are tremendous, of course, especially the, the military. But if we back up and we ask, how do we promote uh, a different kind of humanism, a radical justice humanism, then it forces us to ask the question, what will it take? What investment in life, you know, toward life-sustaining possibilities, food, education, work, uh, and, and what are the mechanisms for the rectification of those things that prohibit life-sustaining possibilities? Uh, white supremacy, structural inequality, land redistribution challenges. And, and so I think that we there's also this 
this this question for reconceptualizing what it would look like and what kind of questions do we actually need to ask in in thinking of other possibilities and i think and then we might consider conceptually you know what then are the dispensations through which these strategies uh, can exist and and of course you know we see un models around you know 2030 etc and when we see the alleviation that are statistical etc but it's it, it's not the answer and and i i think um, we need a different question. We need different sets of questions and we need new tools for really talking about life preservation and, and probably radical tools that, that allow us to really think about the loss of life, the waste of life, and the way that certain lives are expendable um, because we're respecting sovereignty or because we're respecting um, particular principles that actually are in, in, enabled through the law. And so, yeah, that's that's my contribution to that. But please, let, let's continue with the other question. Thank you very much for the intervention, Kamari. It was really interesting. I'm really sorry I didn't see your hand up. Uh, so if I miss, if any of the other panelists would like to jump in at any time, responding to questions, please do so. Uh, so we, we could now continue with uh, the two questions that I read out, the one about Baxi and the one about the ICC and Myanmar. Anyone like to go first? Maybe Obi could speak to the first one first and then uh, Parampreet and everyone else can jump in. Yeah. Um, well, happily or luckily, <laughs> I should say, I think I, I began to answer that to an extent. So just to give a, a very practical example in the sort of hallowed halls of the UN Human Rights Council, um, some of that is happening, right? So more of that needs to, to happen or it needs to be legitimized more. So for example, uh, the notion of permanent sovereignty over national uh, national resources is from the 60s, right? Um, uh, G77, you know, but it's moved into ONDRIP, uh, and it's being used actually more in Latin America now than in uh, in Senegal or the rest of the continent where people like Mbaye and Dudu Thien uh, came from who articulated these concepts, right? So these things come from the social, economic, and political experience of, of peoples, right? Um, articulated to that UN level and is being, uh, and so it's happening on the, on the official uh, register. Um, and that's how you, 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 you begin to, on a more practical level, concretize uh, to Natalie's question, uh, Bakshi's conceptual uh, frame. Uh, I just leave it at that. That could be, I could go on forever, but uh, just give that one example. I've already given the the idea of the language of duties that people like Macau Mutu have, have written about. That is widely spoken on the African continent. What's wrong with it, for instance? So I'm happy to jump in now with in relation to the question on Myanmar. Unless Che, you wanted to add anything to. Oh, no, no, please, please, Karen, please. Okay. Uh, So the question, you know, will an ICC prosecution stop the persecution of the Rohingya or, or really address past wrongs? I, I can't speak for the Rohingya. I mean, I can um, speak for those who have told me that they, again, it's it's necessary. It's It's not the only thing that they're asking for, but... I think again, looking, you know, coming back to what I had said earlier about watching the cost of impunity play out in real time right now with this coup, uh, I think, 
it's hard pressed to find someone, you know, maybe not specifically in relation to accountability for crimes against the Rohingya, but for people to really resist the notion of holding the perpetrators of the coup to account. Um, uh, and just in relation to that, I mean, what else is needed to, to right the past wrongs? There is such a long list. Um, I think starting with the repeal of the 1982 citizenship law, which started the slippery slope of dehumanization of the Rohingya. Uh, you know, that's, that's critical. I mean, you really have to dismantle this sort of ethnic nationalism that has effectively othered the Rohingya in a way that they're not seen as part of the fabric of Myanmar society. So, I mean, there, that's just one example. There are so many others. Um, and maybe just to come back to, I think, to the value of the state responsibility track that I mentioned earlier, looking at possible violations of the Genocide Convention. I mean, what I think that's so interesting about that track is that, you know, you're looking, about account you're looking at accountability, but not through an individual perpetrator, an individual criminal account accountability lens. You're looking at the sort of the very structure that again, contributed to this dehumanization. You're looking at discriminatory laws, you know, restrictions on freedom of movement, hate speech, restrictions on access to healthcare, education, and livelihoods as indicators of genocide. You know, obviously they're, you know, profoundly unjust, but they're also indicators of genocide. So in that instance, I would say, you know, this tool that exists can help, like I said, look at this old problem in a new way. And, you know, in addition to, you know, potentially being violations of the Genocide Convention, you know, addressing those conditions would also, I mean, coup notwithstanding, because that's that events have superseded it, but you know, the idea is looking at these possible violations of the Genocide Convention, you know, addressing them would also help to facilitate returns, the voluntary, safe, and dignified returns of the Rohingya that were forced out of the country in the first place. Um, and then finally, just uh, the question about being more forceful about crimes committed in Afghanistan by the US, I would really encourage the asker of that question to look on our website because we've been very vocal about the need for accountability of US forces because there hasn't been any. Um, and here, you know, we really just come back to what was mentioned earlier about the uneven application of international criminal justice, which is something that we feel very strongly about and have pushed back against and call it out whenever we have the opportunity. I think Afghanistan is a really good example. The investigation in Palestine is another good example. Um, but that's, uh, again, you know, look at our website and I'm happy to answer questions. Is there any other panelists that would like to interview? This, uh, very, two very interesting questions. Okay, then if not, we'll go on to the next two questions. Uh, the next question is from Khalid Sushad. Khalid Ansari from Malaysia. Do you think the veto power of permanent members of the Security Council is just? And this is one of the obstacles that uh, causes the Security Council to be ineffective. The second question, I think, goes, um, addresses Kamari's presentation uh, regarding victims who are become perpetrators the main criticism of Hong uh, Wen's verdict in the ICC. What ideas could you uh, have with regard to mechanisms that break through the victim-perpetrator paradigm that seems to do injustice to certain categories of victims? So would anyone like to address uh, the veto? Yes, Pablo, please go. 
Yes, so very quickly, because I already mentioned in one of my previous interventions that Mexico and France will have this joint initiative to restrict the use of veto voluntarily by the P5 whenever their uh, mass atrocities being committed. Uh, so I would also encourage our, our, our participants to, to look into the text of that. Uh, it, it's very straightforward. And 105 member states have, have already signed and adhered to it. There's also another code of conduct that was produced by the ACT group uh, that has a larger number of signatories, which also goes in a, in a similar direction where the, the veto should not be used um, when, when mass atrocities are committed. But other than that, I just want to make two very um, to-the-point comments. One is, yes, the veto is unfair. Yes, the veto uh, can be an abuse. Yes, we've seen that the veto uh, has been abused and has been used to prevent the council from taking action when needed. All of that, yes. The thing is, it was a premise and one of the things that we uh, accepted when the UN was created. And the reality is that it is not going to go anywhere. So for us, and also from a very practical point of view, especially being a member state, the, the debate cannot be how can we get rid of the veto, because we won't. That is part of the mix. It came with the original recipe. Uh, and we won't get the reform of the UN Charter, at least not today, and at least I don't think in the foreseeable future, to, to get rid of the veto. So the thing is, and, and here's where we go back to the, to the thinking creatively, that the veto is something that we just have to assume will be a reality. It's going to be there. So how do we either bypass it? How do we put a higher political cost? Or how do we operate despite the fact that permanent members have a veto? And the second point I would make is that for us, for Mexico, the veto is not a power, it's a responsibility. There is a joint declaration that the P5 adopted in the time when, when the charter was adopted in San Francisco, where they said this explicitly, that the veto was being included as a, as a, as a responsibility that would allow them to, to, um, to assess a situation in the future in the context of the premises of the charter itself for the assessment of peace and security. And what really, to me, is inconsistent from a legal point of view is that if they are um, very, I mean, if there are uh, mass atrocities being committed and an veto is stopping that, it is unthinkable to understand how it can be justified, even within the UN Charter, that a procedural mechanism, because again, this is important, this is only a procedure, that a procedure can overrule the principles and purposes of the Charter established in Articles 1 and 2. So I think that an, a, a holistic interpretation of the UN Charter would confirm that the veto there is not offered as, as a tool for abuses. It should be used responsibly in light and in, in harmony with the charter itself. And if it is going against the action of the council, which would mean then going against the principles and purposes of the charter, then we're talking about something else. And, and again, that's where we should put an emphasis on the P5 and the pressure on the P5 to try to change that pattern of conduct. So that would be my very short answer to the, to the veto discussion where much more could be said. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pablo. Does anyone else want to speak to the question? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer the, the Ongwen question. Um, so 
where to start with that? Really, what, one of the, the arguments that I made in my opening remarks is that one thing that international criminal law uh, need, of course, are three sets of narratives. The, the narrative of the victim, the narrative of the perpetrator, and the, the role of the international community, and that this is part of the moral force of its institutionalization. Uh, I think one of the challenges with the International Justice Project or International Criminal Justice Project is the individualization of criminal responsibility. Some might say it is its innovation that pro-accountability produces the terms on which we can hold accountable those who would otherwise not be held accountable. On the other hand, what we have is a tool that is ineffective because it pursues high-ranking officials. It, it doesn't really address proximate violators. This is the work of, of, of states. Uh, and some of these states are, are states that are unable and do not pursue uh, the foot soldiers who actually committed the rape, who actually killed, etc. And so what I would say is that while individualization of criminal responsibility became an innovative modality for assigning responsibility, it is not going to get us to the place we need to go ultimately and conceptually to, to move beyond the, the and outside of the box. Uh, I think we need to eradicate the victim perpetrator bi binary. I don't think it's useful um, that there might be particular moments in which we agree as international actors that uh, we can come together and pursue that binary for a particular and very specific purpose. But in many of the contexts that in which we're seeing mass atrocity violence, it's often poor people who are the foot soldiers. It is, um, you know, the Dominic Anguin case is, is a, a, a excellent example of the, the, the challenge with that binary. Uh, and it doesn't fit neatly and, and evenly, of course, even questions of culpability or responsibility. How do we think about these things and not look at the enabling conditions of violence? How do we draw the line post 2002, 2005, 2006, when in fact the conditions under which violence is fostered, you know, 1982, the category of Rohingya, the citizenship category, or the withdrawal of such. Um, uh, and prior to that, these things don't just come all of a sudden, they're, they're part of longstanding and historical um, categorizations, forms of ostracization uh, that are deeply structural. Sometimes it's, it is about white supremacy, sometimes it's about ethnic hatred, sometimes it's about land reform and a whole range of things. And so I think the categories are not useful, maybe they're very particular and can be applied and, and should be applied, but they're, they're not going to uh, get us to where we need to go as we reconceptualize laws, humanity. But I do not think that they'll, they'll get us there. And ultimately, I hope we can abandon th that project around the individualization of criminal responsibility, or at least conjoin it with more effective mechanisms for actually thinking about the underlying structural conditions of violence. Thank you so much, Kamari. I will take one last question before we bring this panel to a close because we are uh, running close to time. And I'll take a question from Muhammad Atal Rahman from Bangladesh. 
it's quite a broad question. So please, uh, all the panelists, feel free to jump in. What are the legal and implementing challenges to ensure humanitarian protection in the context of international crime? Yes, Obi. I got to say, uh, I hear, you know, I completely agree uh, uh, with Pablo uh, on multilateralism being uh, far better. I mean, exponentially better than unilateralism, right? So, so the reason uh, humanitarian intervention uh, is viewed as uh, terribly problematic in in less powerful countries, shall we say, or among less powerful, is that usually is like Anatole France's law, right? It's, it's the powerful who can exercise humanitarian intervention. You know, I'm sure a lot of African countries would have liked to rescue uh, blacks in the deep south, but it was a physical uh, impossibility, political, economic, so, social, right? So, so again, here is where power refracts and shapes and produces, right? So. So that's why you then go to the multilateral to attempt, it's not always successful, of course, I don't wanna be naive, but to hem power in, uh, you're better uh, uh, with you know the G7, that's why you have a G77 for God's sake, or, or those coalitions, right? So you try to do multilateral because it reduces um, the, the, shall we say the, uh, nimbleness and effectiveness with which power can can operate. Uh, so unilateral, almost never. Multilateral, yes. Thank you very much, uh, Obi. Uh, does anyone else have any last words to say before I bring the panel to a close? Because we are one minute away from our closing time. <laughs> Now, in that case, I would like to take this opportunity to thank all our panelists. It's been a great pleasure moderating. And I will hand over to Marion for some closing remarks. Thank you. Always helpful to unmute. Uh, I just wanted to echo Professor Chia's thanks to all of the panelists and, of course, to Professor Chia. Uh, this has been a really interesting discussion, and I know all of the organisers were very cognizant that this is such a broad range of topics that we were trying to fit into two hours. But um, it's been really fascinating to see the way that the panelists have approached this from their different perspectives and the different angles um, in which they've had experience with these issues. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm sure that the audience members, as well as uh, people that view this recording later on, will find this discussion to be really enriching. So please, um, I thank you on behalf of all of the organisers. Um, as I noted, uh, all of these panels have been recorded. This is the fourth panel in this series on reconceptualising international law, and you can find recordings of them on IILA's website. Um, our next panel will be in the week of May 5, uh, and it will be dealing with reconceptualizing international economic law, which I'm sure will also be a uh, very lively discussion. Um, thank you to everyone for joining us uh, and look forward to seeing you at the next event. <laughs>